If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis chapter 46. Genesis chapter 46. So it's Genesis chapter 46, and we'll be starting with verse 27. Before we begin our study of God's word, would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? Father in heaven, this is your word. We pray that tonight, today, this morning, it will indeed be a lamp to our feet. That it will illumine our path. That we would learn your ways, walk in wisdom, and learn to look to you in, in all of our lives, in every aspect of our lives. Oh God, be at work in us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. As you think through the kinds and qualities of leaders you want, I wonder what you value most, what people today would value most in the leaders that we have. What qualities do you want in your leaders? Perhaps you are young and you want someone, maybe depending on the position, technology is in his ability, that person's ability to deal with technology and master it, or a certain degree of knowledge and education, gravitas, or, or money, or people skill. All of these are good qualities. There may be a no, numerous qualities, I'm sure, that you may fill in the blank. These are the things that we want our leaders to have. This morning, we are going to look at Joseph and how he deals with two situations in particular that highlight his wisdom. We had read from Proverbs chapter 8 earlier, and there, verses 15 to 16, we read, By me, that is by wisdom, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, by wisdom that is, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. It is not just knowledge, it is not just some abilities, some competencies that we need to have, some character qualities that we necessarily want. All of those things may be helpful, necessary, but the thing that ties it all together is wisdom. Is wisdom. And this passage holds up wisdom and shows what it looks like when it is at work. Specifically, when it is at work in a, as Joseph is, as a national leader. But ultimately, it points us to the only wise God who alone grants wisdom, delivers sinners from just judgment, and grants eternal life. That is what this passage is leading us to, to glory in our only wise God and to lay out for us a pattern and a picture that we are to follow and to hope in. And it all begins in verse 28 with a family reunion. I'm sure you have been to some family reunions in which you've had a lot of wonderful activities this here, verse 28 to verses 30 to verse 30, tells us about this family reunion. Then he, this is Jacob, 
He sent Judah before him. And this carries on that picture where we've seen Judah given leadership amongst the people of God, amongst the sons of Jacob. Judah, though at one time, he had fallen away and fallen out of favor and literally lived separately from his family, lived in sin. We saw that in Genesis chapter 37. Here, Judah, by this point, he has repented and he has been restored and now he has given this leadership. So Jacob sends Judah before him and before the family as they're coming down to Egypt, before him to Joseph, to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. This is that sweet reunion we have been waiting for for more than 10 chapters in the book of Genesis. Joseph has been sold into slavery. And here we are, 10 chapters later, finally, he is reunited with his family. And it is an emotional, it is a moving picture. Perhaps you have seen um, some of those videos online that show... Let's show a, a, a child or a teenager who is doing something at school, doing something, maybe playing a, a basketball game. And then his father or his mother, still in their fatigues, coming from, uh, from, from war. And they show up and they walk in the room. And as soon as their child, as soon as that teenager sees them, what do they do? They run to them, don't they? It's, it's moving when it's like a, a teenage son, you know, teenage boys, public displays of affection, especially from parents. Uh-uh, we don't accept that. We don't do that. If parents come by the school to say hello, it's like to barely acknowledge that they exist. But here you've got the teenage boy seeing his mom or his dad returned after months and months and months away. And they run and they jump into their arms and they hold them and they cry. That is the moving picture here. These are, these are two grown men. Well, you've got Joseph who by now, he's in his late 30s. He's married He's got kids. His father, Jacob, is, he's elderly. He's old. Weak. He, he had to be, be, he had to be carried to ride on a wagon. He couldn't ride another animal, couldn't walk. He needed to ride a wagon here. And Joseph comes and he falls on his neck. It's a way of saying he wraps him up on his, in a bear hug and he puts his head on his shoulder and starts to weep. And we are told he wept on his neck a good while. And this is a moving picture. And it's fascinating here. This word in verse 29 So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. 
The New King James translates it, and he presented himself. Perhaps you have a different translation, and it might say, he, and he appeared. That word is, it's fascinating that Moses chooses to put that word here, because wherever you find that word translated as he presented himself, anywhere you find that in the book of Genesis, it is always, always been in the case of God appearing to his people. We call those a theophany. God showing up and manifesting himself. And now all of a sudden, that word that has been consistently used to describe that, to describe God's appearing to his people is now being used to describe Joseph showing up to his family. We're not supposed to take it that Joseph is somehow God. We're supposed to see that as Joseph is now becoming the, the picture here in Genesis of a divine deliverer. He is the one. He is, his, his appearance is so momentous, so life-changing, it's as if God shows up. And he is himself just a small picture of the deliverer that will one day come. And the family of Joseph comes, they leads to this reunion between Jacob and Joseph, this moving reunion. But the question is, where will they live? Will they be spread out in the land of Egypt? Will they, will they live in the cities of Egypt? It would make sense, just move in, everybody find a, a home for yourselves. It's, it's not that large of a people. We're told there are only 70 of them in total. I'm not counting servants, whoever else may have attended. So it's not that large of a place. Certainly they could have, there in Egypt, there in one of the major cities, they could have all built up or had homes. But Joseph wants to get them the best of the land. And it's fascinating how Joseph accomplishes this. He calls a family meeting. We see this in verses 31 to 34. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds for their occupation has been to feed livestock and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say, your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth, even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. What Joseph is doing here is he, he knows something about Egyptian culture. He's lived amongst them long enough by now to know what makes them tick, what they like, what they don't like. And there is, he has sensed, a revulsion within the Egyptian people towards not, not just shepherds because they are with sheep, but shepherds as what they represent. They are low-class, ignorant people. And the Egyptians despise them. It would, it would be like today, those in, in places of power and prominence and in the marbled halls that govern our land. They, the, the way that they might look down on some of us who just do a good, honest, hard day's work. 
the way that those in Congress might look down on a farmer, might look down on a plumber, on a construction worker. What do those guys know? Let them live out there. What do do they get? And it's fascinating here. This place, this, this place of Goshen, which is the best of the land, the Egyptians don't live there. And it is the best place. And Joseph wants to secure it for them. But he knows if he merely goes into to Pharaoh with his brothers and they request, hey, we want to live in the best land that you have. We would like to live in Goshen. That the likelihood of them getting the land of Goshen isn't very high. It's typical. But Joseph... He knows that the Egyptians don't value, don't like shepherds, don't like these low-class workers. So he says, when you go, emphasize the fact that you're shepherds. Don't, don't hide it. Don't try to appease them. Don't try to be more likable. Tell them you're shepherds. Tell them, in fact, make that point A and B and C. Oh, we work with livestock. Yeah. And you know, yeah, I'm sorry I smell a little bit. I just came from the fields. You want, you understand. I'm just a lowly person. Oh, you want to give us the best of the land? Well, we'll take it. And that's, that's exactly what happens. We read this in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 47. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. We've been shepherds, our fathers are shepherds, our fathers' fathers have been shepherds. We're all shepherds from all the way down. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph saying, your fathers and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. Do you remember early on in Joseph's life, he is given those, those dreams of what will come, that he will one day rule, and his brothers and his family members, they would bow down to him. Do you remember how he responded after those dreams? What does he do? He goes immediately and he tells his brothers, his family, hey, you're never going to believe what I have dreamed, what God has revealed to me. One day, isn't this great? You all are going to bow down to me. How great is that? What we have seen in Joseph's life is that he has, over time, increased in wisdom. So that now here by the end, yes, he wants the best for his family. He wants his people, he wants his family, his brothers and his father to to live in the best place possible. But he knows that they just come right out and say, hey, you notice that land over there in Goshen? That is a nice land. We'd like to build homes there. We'd like to live there. He knows that the likelihood of them getting it is slim. 
So he wisely works with his brothers to approach Pharaoh in a way that is going to get the desired response. This is wisdom. And we see the upshot in verse 11 to 12. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread, according to the number in their families. They got and were given free land. They were given free bread. There is not much more they could have asked for. So Joseph's family arises. They are given the best of the land. And then I want you to notice the way Israel, Joseph and his father, begin to be a blessing to the nation of Egypt. Egypt is being a blessing to them, indeed, housing them, giving them bread, allowing them to to be saved from the famine. But notice verse 7 to 10. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life doesn't sound like few to us, but in terms of his father and his grandfather, it was, it was few. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from before Pharaoh. Picture what is happening here Jacob is brought in. He comes in before Pharaoh. He is weak with age. Before Joseph even was sold into slavery, he himself did not feel well. He himself thought he was sick. We are told repeatedly since that time that he thought he was on the verge of death. And he will live in the land of Egypt for 17 more years. But here he is, old, frail, Wrinkled with age, a seemingly insignificant man. And he's brought in before Pharaoh. And it would be expected that someone in Pharaoh's position, someone with Pharaoh's power, someone with Pharaoh's influence, someone in the Egyptian mindset where Pharaoh was believed himself to be divine, that Pharaoh would bless Jacob. But that's not the way it happens, is it? Here this old and insignificant and weak and fragile man, he is the one who blesses Pharaoh. And friends, this this begins to set the stage for someone far later who himself was born in an insignificant stable, grew up in an insignificant seeming home, lived an insignificant life, insignificant, seemingly insignificant life as a, as a worker of hands of wood and stone, who died a seemingly insignificant death on the cross. And yet through him, he blesses the world. 
Christ was judged insignificant. We see this in Isaiah 53. He had no form or appearance or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We may have esteemed him not. The world may have esteemed him not. But on the third day, he shocked the world in rising from the dead, and now he lives to bless all who hope in him. And this we see reflected in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is foolishness. It is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I want you to see the wisdom of God is on full display here. We tend to believe the lie that the more important someone is, that the greater of influence and power and authority and money and education and, 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 and significance in the world's eyes, they are the ones who have the authority. They are the ones who can bless others. And it is the opposite In the end, it will be the lowly people of God who trust in Christ that bless the world. More than this, not only does Jacob bless Pharaoh, Joseph blesses, through wisdom, he blesses all of Egypt. We see this in verses 13 to 27. Now there was no bread in all the land, For the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Do you hear that word? It it didn't just, things weren't bad. The, The land languished. There is nothing. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain in which, for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt, that is when it ran out, When it failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed, there's nothing left. Then Joseph said, Give give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock, if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all the livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord. 
but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's, and as, the peop- and as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their lands." Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your household and as food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph, will make, and Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day, that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Well, we have described in these verses is incredible wisdom. Joseph, week after week, day after day, year after year, he is finding a way to provide for the people of Egypt and all of the nations surrounding them. Yes, the end result is that everyone in Egypt is in some form of a what would then be called a a debtor's slavery. That is, they would have to work themselves out of it. It was rather annoying reading this passage and trying to study it. There were a number of commentators who just skipped this passage altogether. Many others, when they talked about it, they condemned Joseph for what he did here. As if what he did was, was evil, was wrong in some way. Others of a different persuasion argued that this is an example of why, of how we should be setting up governments today. This is an example, they argued, for a more communist form of government. The problem is that, you'll, as we read through that passage, Joseph never once forcibly takes anyone's property. In fact, the only time he receives someone's property from them is after they themselves volunteer it up, which means something. It means that Joseph is respecting their rights to private property, which is something that in communist regimes they, they don't do. They don't believe in private property. All property is owned by the state and for the state, and it is merely loaned out for your personal use. Your personal use, which is then to be given back to the state. And you'll notice at the end here, far from being oppressed, the people of Egypt praise Joseph, do they not? Verse 25, you have saved us all. And Joseph, in his mercy, when he he buys one thing after another until they have nothing left, 
And then he, he buys them with bread, gives them bread. Why should you all die? There's bread here. And as they repay it, Joseph has the right to determine what the, the split is going to be. How much are you then going to have to give to Pharaoh in perpetuity to pay off your debt and then as permanent tax? And how much will you keep? And do you notice the, the difference there? Joseph says, you keep 80% of all that you earn and we'll take 20%. That's the tax. Most of us would love to have a similar tax bracket today. What Joseph is doing here is immensely wise. Some have argued if Joseph was really kind and compassionate and thoughtful and really loved these people, he would just be giving them bread. He would just be giving them the the means by which they can produce their own food. And he would expect and ask nothing in return. And that would seem, on the surface, that would be kind. And, And we might do that for a short period of time, but this is not a short period of time. This This time period is going to last four or five more years. And I want you to imagine if for four or five years, Joseph had just made it a practice that no one in Egypt had to work. They would all be given their daily food. What would the long-term effect of such a policy be on the nation of Egypt? I mean, can you imagine after four or five years of you don't have to work, you just show up every now and then, you get your your food, your grain, whatever you need to survive from Joseph, you're good to go, you go back home, you do whatever you want. I, I don't know what the ancient version of watching TV would have been, but you know, you do whatever they did back then. And then one day, the grain runs out, the famine's ended, and now everyone has to work. But you've got, for four or five years, an entire nation that doesn't know how to work. What would the long-term effects, what would the harm be? I want you to understand what Joseph is doing here is immensely wise. He is delivering the people of Egypt through wisdom. He is, by now, the picture in Genesis of the divine deliverer. The one who will wisely deliver not only the people of Israel, but all God's people. And the upshot of it there is in verse 27. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Egypt is saved along with the people of God. So let me close by making 12 observations. No, I'm just kidding. I have three observations. (laughs) One of the themes through the book of Genesis is, I can sum it up with three words, land, seed, and blessing. 
If you were this week, this afternoon, to read through the book of Genesis, and you were to just highlight in different colors each one of those words, land, seed, blessing, or some variation on it, you would find a massive theme through the book of Genesis. And in that book, they all come together here. Land. They are given the best of the land. Oh, it is not the land that God has promised. It is not the, that land, but it is the best of this land. There is blessing. Jacob blesses Pharaoh. Joseph is a blessing to all of Egypt. Seed. There in verse 27. They grew and multiplied exceedingly. We see this from the very beginning. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And then in Genesis chapter 12, after Adam and Eve have fallen and and humanity has fallen into sin, they've been cast out of the land of Eden, the garden of Eden. Abraham is promised, go to the land that I will show you. There I will increase you. You will be fruitful and multiply. And you will be a blessing. In that covenant, that, that promise is reiterated from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And now we begin to see the fruit of it beginning to bloom. Friends, what God commands, what God promises, He gives. What God promises, He gives. Therefore, we can commit our way to Him. Put yourself in the the sandals of Joseph. If he had not believed the promises in the word of God, if he had not believed that God is who he says he is, that he is good, that he will uphold his promise, that he is sovereign and working all things together for his good and the good of his people, for his glory and his people's good, if he had not believed that God was merciful and kind, if when he was sold into slavery, rather than trusting God, he had just turned into bitterness, if he would have soured against God when he had been unjustly condemned to prison, Egypt would be destroyed and the people of God would have been ended. Land, seed, and blessing all begin to come to fruition here because of the wise deliverance of Joseph. The other thing that we see, observation two, is that this text helps us to see that the mission of God is advancing. The mission of God is advancing. When we reflect on Genesis 46 and 47, we can not only see, we must not only see how God uses Egypt to save Israel, but how God uses Israel to save Egypt. God could have rescued his people in the land of Canaan. He is God. He could have provided food for them there. He could have provided and taken care of them there. But he moves them to Egypt. 
It helps us to see that the mission of God is to reach and bless and display for the nations His grace, His mercy as a deliverer, as one who will save. He is the creator. He is the one who rules over heaven and the earth. If he gives the famine, he is the one who can end it. And he is the one who will provide a means to deliver us through it. God's purpose in removing his people from Canaan to Egypt was not merely to rescue Israel. It was to showcase and offer his saving grace to the people of Egypt. Brothers and sisters, Israel was delivered that they might be a light to the world. In fact, if we were to have the time and to read through the first 19 chapters of Exodus, one of the things that we would come away with again and again is that God does all of that. He saves his people. That the world may know. That Pharaoh may know. That Egypt may know. That Yahweh is the one true God. Brothers and sisters, that's what God has done his work in us for. That we might be his witnesses to the ends of the world. The end for which God has rescued us. And brought us together as a local church is that we might be witnesses to him here. We are coming to the end of a generation of Christians who sacrificed so heavily so that others could go and some so that they themselves could go where Jesus would not be known. And the question is, Who will go next? Are we so busy raising kids to be passionate about sports or video games or making money or about whatever is happening in the world that we are not raising them to think of where Christ has not yet been made to be known? The world has changed so rapidly that we do not even need to go to the ends of the world. We can go across the street It's in the next cubicle, the next office space, the next person in line. It's Limerick, it's Pottstown, it's Collegeville, it's Boyertown, it's Perkyomenville, it's Spring City and Royersford, and Trapp and Schwanksville and Douglasville. And because we're in Pennsylvania, like a million other townships that you go through before you even know it. Why did God save you by his son? To know him and enjoy him forever? Yes. But also to be his witnesses. Last observation. Joseph is both a pattern and a picture. He is a pattern and a picture. He is a pattern for us to follow because he is a pattern. He is, Joseph is able to deliver because he has been faithful to God. He is a, a pattern of faithfulness. 
All throughout his life, he has believed and trusted in the Lord. And in that pattern, we are to follow. Friends, we do not know what tomorrow will hang upon the hooks of faithful obedience today, but we may be assured of this. That in faithfully doing what God has called us to do and following after Christ, those faithful acts have the potential to bless those around us and in the example of Jesus, in the example of Joseph, to change the world. Simple obedience, simple faithfulness put him in the position that he was in. He is a pattern of faithfulness. He is also a pattern for wisdom. By wisdom, rulers bring about justice and righteousness. By wisdom, Joseph brings about the the blessing of his family to live in the best of the land. And by wisdom, he delivers, Joseph delivers the people of Israel. What is wisdom? It is not merely knowing something. It is genuine insight about how the way things work together. It begins with the fear of the Lord. This past week, One of our friends, uh, one of my friends was uh, playing one of my boys, Ethan, in chess. Ethan has really begun, uh, sorry, Ethan, I didn't tell you I was going to do this. I hope it's okay. Ethan, I don't like to use my boys too often without their approval as illustrations, but uh, I'll ask his forgiveness later. Ethan has really gotten into chess lately, really gotten into chess. Uh, And he discovered something that I didn't know existed called Chess boxing, which is something that actually happens. You, you play, two guys will be in a ring, they will play chess for a little while, and then they box for a while, and you either win by beating them at chess, or you win by beating them at boxing. Isn't that insane? I don't know how those two things ever got together, but that's something else for another time. But he was playing someone we know uh, in chess this past week, And that person came and was telling me about their their playing chess. Ethan has really enjoyed chess. He's really gotten into it. He's reading books. He is is studying chess, okay? This is like nerd time, okay? Yes, I'm rubbing off on my children. And he he can far outplay me. It's not even close anymore. And his friend was coming. He's an adult man. He's got two kids himself. He's in his 30s. He's sitting down playing Ethan in chess. And... um, He's telling me later, he's like, look, I, I know how the pieces move. I, I've played chess. I, I, I can work it all. I can see the board. I got it all. I, I can't play chess with Ethan. He said, I knew it was bad when I made a mistake. And I, I looked up and I said, oops, I, I made a mistake. And Ethan's response was, you're telling me. No mercy, just going in for the kill. That's how I often feel now when I'm playing him. I know the moves. I can put it all together. I can, I can think a couple moves ahead. It's the difference between knowing and wisdom. We need to seek wisdom. You may know a lot about the world. How much 
do you need to know? How much is wise for you need to know? How much news is it how much news is wise for you to consume? That takes wisdom. When you go to work, it's not merely about how you do what you do and knowing the things and the processes that you have to do when you get there. But how do you do it in the world in which we live that is broken and how do you do it in honor God and being faithful? That takes wisdom. Knowing what to do and how to do it and with whom to do it and the timing to do it and the process to do it and all of those things, all to the pleasure of God. That takes wisdom. Seek wisdom. Joseph is a picture of both faithfulness and wisdom. But he is a pattern for us to follow as well. I'm sorry, he is a pattern of faithfulness and wisdom. He is also a picture for us to hope in and long for. By his wise faithfulness, Joseph delivers God's people. And in this, Joseph is nothing short of a picture of Christ Jesus. Who through Christ, who through his perfect obedience, his perfect faith, his perfect wisdom, delivers and saves all who hope in him. Friend, I want you to understand all of us outside of Jesus. And if you have never trusted in Jesus, this is you. That we face something far worse than a famine and a food shortage. We face the righteous, just wrath of an infinitely holy God. And though God is rightfully angry with us, yet in his incomprehensible love for us, he has sent his son into the world to die for sinners so that all who hope in him may be rescued, delivered. Because Jesus was righteous his entire life, faithful in everything, wise in all things. He is a deliverer. The only hope that you and I or any of us can have in this world is not in us. It is not in our religiosity. It is not in us performing certain tasks. It is hoping in Jesus. Just as the Egyptians had no other hope but to come to Joseph for help and food, so we must come to Christ for rescue. And the promise is that all who come to him, he will never cast out. None of us are worthy of it. God in his mercy provides it. And Joseph rules justly and wisely. In fact, Joseph rules justly because he rules wisely. And in this he too is a picture of Christ. There is this phrase in Revelation 19, 15, where we are told that Christ, once Christ defeats and judges his enemies, he will rule with an, an iron rod, with an iron scepter. You know, that is, that is a picture of a forceful rule. That's definitely not something we are experiencing now. Christ is not ruling at this time with an iron rod. 
Nor can we say that in the new heavens and the new earth, Christ will be ruling with an iron rod. What that seems to be picturing, that seems to be, what that is describing is the rule of Christ when he reigns on earth during the millennium. His reign on earth, which will be just and righteous because he is the wise deliverer. In that day, all that we long for, all that we long to see in our government where it falls short, all that we long to see in ourselves and yet we fall short, in that day, we will see Christ and he will rule and reign on this earth. Joseph is a picture of our ruling Savior who rules with wisdom and accomplishes justice. Look to that Christ. Look to that Savior. Look to that day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, all that we see in the world that frustrates us, we know that your Son will one day rule with perfection. He will set things right. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us today to look, to see and to savor Christ above all things. To see and savor Christ as our faithful and wise deliverer. And to long with increased fervency upon the time when your Son, our Savior, will rule in this world. Oh God, we long for that day when righteousness will be on earth. Oh God, we pray that till then you will give us wisdom that we may be faithful in all that you call us to do to your great glory. In Christ's name, amen.